This is Being Modern, Being Human, a podcast about contemporary society. And my guest today is Nieha Chatwani, an independent researcher in organizational psychology and integration ambassador for youth with migrant backgrounds in Austria. In this episode, we will talk about migration as a phenomenon that is deeply rooted in human history. We will also touch upon digital nomadism and cultural identities. Hi, Neher. Thank you for being with me today. Thank you so much, Ina, for having me here today. I'm quite excited uh, by our podcast and conversation. All right, let's begin. In the socio-political rhetoric, migration is typically depicted as a problem that needs to be solved. However, migration has been an integral part of our history as humanity and has determined our development since prehistoric times. Do you think there is a way to look at migration differently? Could it be beneficial? And if yes, how? So, um, Ina, let me start off by saying you're absolutely right. Um, migration, or even Vandalust, if you want to call it, is very innate to humankind. I think we've done it since we exist, basically, motivated by different things. I think which includes the search of food, which includes the need to move because there have been environmental triggers such as fires or natural disasters. Later on in our history, it was about war and politics or persecution. And sometimes I think that we actually moved out of curiosity, even in in the beginning of our days, because we are learning beings. And uh, by moving our environments, we learn more and we also interact with others. And I think what we also know in history is that the more uh, civilizations have interacted with each other, albeit most of the time it was about war, uh, they have learned a lot from each other and progressed to the next level. So it seems ironic that we've come to a point and maybe it's not only true for our times maybe it was always the shadow side of migration that we like to give it a rather negative connotation and um because obviously on the micro level it can cause frictions there's no there's no doubt about that i mean everything that has a positive learning side has also a bit of an effort, negative shadow side to it. And that's true for migration too. What I find quite exciting when we look at migration sometimes today, and especially in the socio-political rhetoric, is we look at people like myself who have moved over several cultural regions. So I'm born in India. I've spent most of my childhood in the Middle East. Vienna is my home. Uh, I'm an Austrian citizen here. I've lived in several countries in Europe. Uh, We look at people like myself because we are uh, highly qualified, educated individuals as expats, right? There's the spectrum, the high-end spectrum. And we look at people who need to flee out of their countries, albeit sometimes because the bombs that are falling there are sold by our own countries. <laughs> so they are seeking refuge with those who have actually perpetrated the situation as refugees. And that's a wide spectrum. And I find, uh, and then in between, we have so many other reasons why people would be moving around and they are all legitimate um, in certain frameworks. How do we um, 
how do we actually lump these people into one category called migration? Um, the purpose, the motivation is so different in these different groups. But I think we simplify it. And that adds to this negative connotation, right? Uh, and so uh, there's in my own identity only a very recent awareness of the fact that I am a person with a migration background. I never actually saw myself this way. I always saw myself as somebody who was born in one country through the profession of my father traveled through various countries and then through my own professional life traveled through various countries and see myself as a conglomerate of all of that. Um, and that's a very different story from somebody who needs to flee and actually needs protection and needs countries to sign up to the um, Geneva Conve Convention in Action. That's, that's a very different story. And yet we put it all under one umbrella. This I find a bit concerning. We need to differentiate more and we need to look at the individual groups and how they serve society or how we need to serve them more closely. I think what you just mentioned, uh, this lack of differentiation is very characteristic of the uh, European or the Western view of the world. In your opinion, how could we move away from this West-centered or Europe-centered approach? I'm not sure it's Europe-centered or Western-centered. I think there is a certain hierarchy, um, which is also connected to class, to gender, to education, that is true across the world, right? We, we can look at other regions. There will always be people who are poorer than the poor of that country. So... I actually think, ironically, um, the attitude towards migration that we're seeing sociopolitically is probably quite universal. It's just that the hierarchy is a different one in different regions, or the peoples that are concerned are different in every region. I find it quite interesting that people feel that this is a purely a European issue because Europe seems to be building a sort of a fortress and is becoming sort of more self-protected in that sense. The, ir the irony is that we also see in all of the cultures how much uh, migrants or people moving into your culture influence the culture and how much you absorb. So I think in the meanwhile, um, you know, eating a curry, a good curry at a, at a pub in London is the most normal thing to do. But I'm not sure that was the case 30 years ago, right? But, you know, even the most British of the British, whatever that means, will tell you that that is absolutely national diet. And they don't think anything of it, right? As would be perhaps grabbing a kebab uh, on the street in Berlin, right? No, nobody thinks about that. But I'm sure that 30 years ago, that was not what people did. So I think we kind of forget how much it, it we absorb of migration as well as part of our cultural identities and that cultural identities are fluid. They're, they're not static, right? They're dynamic because we're learning beings. I, I always see it from this point of view of psychology and, and learning. Uh, and that is, I think, what migration is very much about. It might be triggered through sociopolitical attitude, but it ends up being a whole learning experiment, both for the person who's moving, as well as for the society who is absorbing. Yes, that's very true. I totally agree. So now I think it's time to talk about 
the psychology of migration. How do we learn to accept others? Are there any stages in this process? And as for people who come to other places, how do they get assimilated? And what experience do they have? That's a really fantastic question, Ina, which I probably will not have a simple answer to. <laughs> I think a lot, if we, if we talk about migration as a learning experience, right, which I think is an interesting approach to take on both sides. Um, and we do this easily with highly qualified people. We don't do it so easily with ordinary people who just walk across a border. Um, it seems that as a society, we always think that the individual who walks across is the first person who has to make the effort of integration into this new society. So that's the person who needs to make that first step into learning the language, into following the rules, the laws, the general norms of where they have come. I think to a certain degree, that's probably a sane way to approach it, also because it's the best way for this individual to find their place in this new environment. At the same time, it's like, um, you know, if you're pouring liquid into a glass that already has liquid, um, it's going to change the content of what is in the glass, for better or for worse, right? So I think it's very difficult to pretend that an individual that comes in and starts to adapt themselves into an org into a society, uh, learns the language, etc., is not going to influence the society they have entered. Why? Because in order to learn, they need to ask questions. And I know from my personal experience, there are different uh, holidays or rituals. Um, and I do spend time asking Austrians who are born here and grew up here, why do you do this on that particular day? Like, what, where does this ritual come from? And it's astounding how many times people are unable to answer that question, right? They know so little about their own roots. They know that this is what happens, this is what you do, but they don't really know where it's coming from. So I think that the typical migrant, it's a typical migrant question, right? If you need to explain something to somebody or tell them that this is what they need to do to fit in, they will ask you, so why do you do it? And this triggers a learning process in the society, which is why I think then, you know, there's this absorption that happens as well. Uh, so it's, an ex it's actually an exciting process. If you, if you want to see it as a positive learning process, right? Exactly. Where, mm -hmm. um, where, where I think it gets difficult is when you start having this, the confrontation, right? The, the inability to actually ask questions and listen to each other. And actually appreciate, first of all, that a lot of culturals, a lot of cultures, sorry, will have commonalities, right? Common stories. We all come from somewhere similar in a way. We all have common needs as human beings. But I think where it becomes difficult is when people forget to ask the question and other people forget to listen carefully uh, or to even be curious to find an answer. Right. It just is that way is sometimes an answer that people give you. And that's not very satisfactory. Right. What you just said uh, made me think about traditions. This is actually something we often take for granted. This is something we were born with. Uh, we have followed for years since our childhood. And to a certain extent, this is our zone of comfort. 
And when we see people who come from different backgrounds, who bring different traditions, uh, that disrupts our zone of comfort. Even though we might not specifically like our traditions, but there is a pressure from families, from societies to follow them, and that's what we do. So what do you think about that? Yeah, I think you're right. I, I think on the one on the one hand, you know, we are we're comfort beings. I mean, hu human beings like what they know. It's comfortable. Uh, yet we are also learning beings. So that makes us naturally curious about things we don't know, even if it installs a certain fear as well. Right. That's the adventurous side of who we are. And of course, when when you have some when you're confronted quasi with somebody or something that is very different from what you know you start to question a little bit what you take for granted and how you and I think this this questioning the way we question the way we ask the way we answer is what um, makes the quality of the migration sometimes it works very well and very smoothly and sometimes it leads to confrontations which are unnecessary right so as society um Perhaps we simply need to learn how to learn in order to manage migration. To come back to your very first question, right? <laughs> Looking ahead, uh, the curiosity of not immediately assuming that this is going to be a difficult situation or an unwanted one, but rather to say, okay, you know, there's possibility in this as a first idea, right? And then, of course, I know that it's also a very complicated legal uh, situation, etc. But that all comes anyway, right, in the game. Yes, thank you for that answer. And now I would like to talk about something else, about the COVID pandemic that has impacted our lives in the past few years. And of course, it has impacted our ability to move around and... Um, it accelerated the shift to remote and hybrid work models. So in this regard, what do you think we are going to see in the future? We're definitely embarking on a new century when it comes to the, the world of work and mobility and technology and digitalization. I, I sometimes feel we're, we're in an era which must have felt similar to the 19th century steam engine. You know, where there was a lot of excitement and fear at the same time. I, I sometimes feel that, that COVID has triggered that and made it real that we are moving into a new century with a new paradigm and a new reference framework. So it's very difficult, I think, for anybody to say what is really going to happen next. And it's full of paradoxes, right? On the one hand, as you say, we've hardly been able to move around or only with great difficulty, um, and on the other hand, we have never been so linked with each other as before. I mean, think of how we have connected, Ina, right? We have connected mostly online. We've never seen each other in person. And perhaps that wouldn't even have happened if these circumstances had not existed. So on the one hand, it seems that mobility per se is, of course, um, becoming slimmer. But the world is opening up much wider, which is ironic or a paradox, it might seem. I don't want to say that we have never had this situation, because I personally remember working for a large American IT company 25 or so years ago, and I was in a remote team already then. So it's not something we're not familiar with. 
But at the same time, we used to insist that at one point we need to see each other and we need that human contact. If I look at some of the technology in metaverse, I don't know if we have a technology that allows us to feel that we're actually with the other person, with all of the senses that that involves. I'm not sure what it does with our minds and with our hearts, uh, but maybe it's going to be possible. I think what we are learning, though, is that the human factor is extremely important in interaction. So a lot of things can be done online, no doubt about that. But if we look at the figures around mental health and the increase in depressive symptoms, etc., it shows us that obviously we as human beings need each other in, in real uh, physical interaction as well in order to be the social mammals and beings that we are, in order to be entirely healthy. How we're going to bridge this in the future I don't know, you know, we'll have to wait and see, I think. But it, it's kind of, you know, there's a lot of fascination with technology. And at the same time, as a psychologist, I have to say some of the mental health figures are very concerning. Uh, and we really realize, especially for children and their development, their social development, they need the classroom. Um, they need interaction with their peers. But I mean, on a physical level, they, they cannot be isolated at home on the screen this is causing a lot of distress and we even see it in adults. So um, I don't think we're all going to go cyber soon, quickly for a hundred and hundred percent. Yeah. I'm curious, is there any understanding among scientists how much physical contact we actually need every day? Is that five minutes, 10 minutes, one hour or three hours? And is that any different for extroverts and introverts? To be honest, I don't think we have enough data yet to make, um, to make really certain statements about this. I think there are different groups we need to look at. So it, it's not only about personalities of introverts and extroverts. In the beginning of the pandemic, uh, I think a lot of introverts were able to cope much more easily it seemed, at least, they seemed to have for once an advantage. Um, but I'm not sure that this is the long-term effect. I think this was a short-term effect because even introverts need interaction. They just interact in a different way than extroverts do. We also know that there are differences in age groups. Um, there are differences, of course, in class. There are differences in... Um, depending on your on your so social status. So if you're single or if you have a family you have to take care of and who they are. Um, but what we do know is that it does impact everybody, irrespective in which group, maybe in a different way and to a different extent. But there seems to be no perfect constellation of person who doesn't need uh, social interaction and preferably physical social interaction face to face. Uh, this, this, I think, uh, appears to be very innate in human beings. We, we need that. We need that also as part of our um, social development, but also for our own mental hygiene.
Uh, since we talk about um, hybrid and remote work models, I would also like uh, to talk about uh, the phenomenon of digital nomadism. Of course, it's bringing about changes in society and uh, they will be growing. So what should we do as societies, uh, governments, uh, what should we do now to be ready for these changes? That's a very complex level because I think that it needs to be addressed on so many, uh, so many different layers of society. So I know, for example, as we migrate to becoming more of a, a cyber nomadic workforce, uh, especially for qualified people, um, a lot of the legislation in different countries doesn't allow for this kind of flexibility. So we still have a lot of old social systems and taxation systems and, uh, you know, all, a whole framework of society, which is based on the 20th century, which is perhaps not conducive to people picking up their laptop and working from anywhere, doing a whole series of different things, which is what these nomadic workers do. At the same time, I think that the shadow side of where uh, we are developing um, economically is that I'm sure that in future there will not be as many people in manufacturing. Um, if you really think about it, even boarding a plane nowadays, you don't really need anybody there. So you buy your ticket online, you print it out, you can check in your own baggage, everything is over barcode. You know, you can board a plane without having spoken to a single person or a single person actually doing anything for you. Pick up your own water bottle as you go in. Uh, so fact is, I think in a lot of processes, I mean, I've seen these robots serving in restaurants, right? You can tap in your order on a tablet and and have a robot bring it to you. So a lot of these areas, factories and service areas may not require as much labor as we have had until now. Um, the technology is there. There are different reasons why we wouldn't plunge into that. I do expect the whole shadow side of uh, unemployment um, and reskilling that would need to happen for this very large group of people who do these kinds of jobs, bus drivers and pilots. I mean, you could travel on a plane, you know, you don't even really need a pilot, even after you've checked yourself in. Um, that is going to be quite daunting in the first half of this century as we move on. And I think COVID has accelerated it, but it's not the last um, trigger, is my guess. There still will be more triggers. Um, so we need to prepare ourselves for a society that needs reskilling or upskilling, or maybe even a completely different concept of work and contribution in society. Um, we work for gain. Maybe that's not the reason to work. And that's not the only way to contribute towards a functioning society. And maybe there needs to be more art and there needs to be, yeah, other, other things to explore which are not directly linked to labor and employment. So, you know, very multiple levels of, of things that need to be looked at, uh, right, from an individual level to a community level to a legislative level, really. Um, governments are still not enabling, I think, the change in, in the way they... I would say that these changes in society are very much uh, connected to uh, the abilities of each individual to learn and to adapt.
and in this regard uh, the opportunity and the ability to learn is very important. It is already essential now and it will be fundamental in the future. I mean, we've gone back to the learning topic, haven't we, you know, right? I mean, we're, when we're talking about upskilling, so we're not, we're talking about ongoing life learning uh, ability, which I think needs to be reintroduced into society. It's not about, I go to school, I graduate, and that's kind of it. Uh, we have to realize that as we as we live longer, healthier lives and continue to make contributions, even at later stages in our lives, we're going to have to be learning all the time. And uh, and how we choose to do it uh, is perhaps going to be different. I, I I know that now in this conversation, for example, we've left off the whole topic of climate change and how this will play into migration and learning and other things in society, but that would be exploding, right? The, uh, <laughs> the minutes we have for this podcast, but that's a whole nother dimension that can be explored. Yeah. Our ability to learn is very much formed uh, in uh, our childhood and teenage years. And in this regard, I would like you to talk more about uh, your work as an integration ambassador for youth with migrant backgrounds in Austria. Uh, what do you do in this position? This is an initiative that was uh, started uh, by the ministry here in Austria. And I think the original idea was to motivate uh, youth uh, with so-called migrant backgrounds by uh, bringing in role models or examples to the schools to speak to the class. And that's basically what we do. It's a very casual thing. We get invited by um, schools to come along and speak in the classroom about our own journeys, about um, the difficulties we have encountered um, and how we have overcome them, uh, primarily to act as role models for those children who have different backgrounds. Uh, I have found increasingly that it's actually about informing the other kids in the room. Okay, so by showing them, you know, be kind to that kid who's awkward and doesn't speak the language, uh, because, you know, this kid could be the next me or the next uh, famous football player or something, and you would have missed the chance to be his friend, so to speak, or her friend. Um, I find that it, it, there's a very interesting dynamic in the room. So uh, the original purpose of bringing in people who have uh, overcome the challenges of being obviously people with migrant backgrounds uh, and speaking openly about things like discrimination, racism, uh, finding, you know, motivational moments with these kids um, has really become a two-way road, which is really exciting. And it's always fun to go into these classrooms and speak to these young people very casually. And they're, they're also so casual. I mean, they, they also are candid about asking private questions and so on. And it's, it's fun. And these, um, the, the classroom is full of, of young people from the age of eight to, to 16, 18, all kinds of schools, some of them, you know, learning uh, professions already, and some of them more general education. Uh, so that's basically what the, what the integration ambassador is. There's a database, and every so often we get called up uh, yeah, to go and visit a classroom 
I just thought this approach is actually necessary for all children. Uh, it doesn't matter whether they are of migrant background or not, because in the young age we don't have experience and we don't have uh, the idea of what is possible and what is not. And people who come and share their experience and their knowledge firsthand, they inspire and they do uh, give these perspectives of what is possible. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So. As the idea is so much to play the role model for those kids who have the migrant background, I find it inspires the others in the room just as well, right? Because I think what we what we sometimes forget is that, okay, so the the the, the school kid with with a migrant background might be struggling with German, but there might be a very Austrian kid who has some kind of a speech challenge, right? Lisps or something. In a way those two situations are quite parallel, right? They both have the fear that the other person won't understand them, for example, that they cannot express themselves, etc. So I, I really agree with you. I also see it as uh, an, an initiative that started perhaps in a certain thinking and in practice uh, has a much wider impact than it might be obvious. And uh, I think that's what makes it so pleasurable because it's it's so casual, it's so informal. Um, yes, we're, we, we, we come and we tell a story, but we are then asked all kinds of questions. And I think as human beings, we love stories, right? We're curious about each other. We want to hear narratives and, and I'm curious about other people's stories as well. This is what excites me. Um, so it works. it works very well. There is another topic that I'm really very interested in and would like to discuss with you as a researcher and someone who uh, has so much experience in living in different cultures across the world. This is cultural and national identity. I think that the more expatriate or migration experience we get, the more our national identity becomes blurred as we learn and adjust to ways, norms and modes in other countries and cultures. What's your take on that? Is it fair to say that we are witnessing the emergence of a kind of global culture? Um, I think that's been happening for some time, uh, that there is a sort of a global... I think if you look at younger people who are uh, in their 20s or underneath 20, they do similar things across the world. They play similar games or I know they're all on the same uh, platforms. They wear similar clothes. Um, that's more of a class thing, I think, rather than a cultural thing. So there, there is that emerging and that has been emerging for some time is my feeling. I think what we shouldn't forget in this discussion is that nationality or national ID is almost a little bit artificial because na nation states change, Right. Uh, those are the lines that we have drawn on the globe, so to speak. Whereas cultural identity comes more from, from the community thinking. I think even within countries, uh, people have their own identities, depending on the regions they come from and their, the roots of their family. And personally, I think there's, um, there is gain in understanding who you are culturally and where you come from. Those are kind of your roots. So if we would see individuals as trees, trees need roots, right? Without roots, they're going to be just a piece of wood, basically. They will be dead. 
But part of what we do, and maybe this is a good analogy for migration, is that we grow and we stretch our branches and we could stretch them in different directions. It's still the same tree. You're just gathering different perspectives, right? Yeah, I, I don't know how else to describe it best. I mean, I often say for myself, I'm an Indian-born Austrian citizen, and there's stuff in between, right? But, you know, those are the technical facts, if you like. And cultural identity for me has always been about absorbing things that I appreciate and I like, and letting go of the rest, really, as an expat. That's a very interesting observation. And I just thought, um, that's true. Today we can choose whatever identity we want uh, because we can travel, we can be exposed to different cultural practices, um, we can read books, we can watch films. And um, this is really great. But on the other hand, that can be overwhelming because uh, we all have this information overload. And uh, with that, it's very difficult to dig uh, inside yourself and to answer the question who am I and that is the fundamental existential question, uh, question. Mm, why 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 would we need to ask that question I, I mean I, I I challenge I challenge that proposition is it not enough to say I'm a human being and I have all the needs that every other human being has I um I find that quite delightful myself. I, I don't have the need to have to explain further because I know that my identity is going to change in principle, is dynamic, and depending on the experiences I make or choose to make, it will change, right? And I think that uh, we, when we deny each other that space, just like when we deny each other the, the freedom to express where our roots are, this is, I think, where the confrontation happens, right? And I myself have had, of course, a whole range of experiences around this, because if you meet me at a dinner party, I will tell you I am Viennese. And for many people, they, you know, need to look at me and say, but where do you originally come from? And I always say, but where do you originally come from? Right? And... um I don't mean it in a mean way. It's just that if I choose to say that that's what my identity is, I don't understand why somebody else has to question it. <laughs> right? And, uh, and I find it's an interesting discussion in migration that we insist that integration has something to do with leaving your roots behind, which is virtually impossible because you're going to be dead wood if you do that. So you shouldn't do that. And it's disrespectful for your whole ancestry, right? I mean, there's a whole history that is inside your genes. Uh, and at the same time, we deny people the possibility to choose who they want to be. And, and why can't they? That's so true. Humanity is something we all share. And that brings us to our last question, the one I ask all my guests. Uh, this podcast is titled Being Modern, Being Human. So what does it mean for you? being modern and being human? I think it's about uh, being curious and uh, being open to learning all the time, which has been our theme today. So 
That's, that's what I think it means to be human, to be curious and to be open to learning. That's a great answer. So let's stay curious and open-minded. Thank you so much, Neha, for being my guest today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Ina. Thanks. Thank you all for listening. If you are enjoying this podcast, feel free to leave a rating or review on one of your favorite platforms. This will help others to discover the podcast. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your summer and be modern and human.